Welcome to Eurodollar University. My name is Emil Kalinowski. I'm joined by Jeff Snyder, the head of global research for Alhambra Partners. And we are going to be talking about repo swarms, repo fails swarms. Jeff has defined it in one of his articles here as a swarm of repo fails is a sign of structural systemic shortfall in monetary capacity for one of the most crucial elements in the whole global dollar architecture. Leaping out from the shadows, grabbing you by the lapels and shaking you into alertness. That is true if you've been listening to this show, Eurodollar University, and you're interested about money in the shadows that runs the global economy. But if you're an orthodox economist or you work for the mainstream financial press, repurchase agreement fails are treated as what, Jeff Snyder? They're treated as a symptom of too many short sellers betting against treasuries because they're, they believe in the inflation story or whatever Federal Reserve chairman says he's going to hike rates until he gets to the moon, right? So, you know, we have a bunch of short sellers, which means they're borrowing treasuries from somebody else. They don't own them. They sell them ahead of time. That's what short selling is. You're selling something you don't own and intending to buy it back at a cheaper price later. So short sellers are betting against the treasury market, which means they're betting interest rates are going to go up. And they're betting it with treasuries they don't immediately own. So if there's a lot of short sellers, there might become a time when they all have to cover their shorts at the same time, which means treasuries will be in short availability. It'll be hard to find. And that could lead to a situation where in the repo markets or collateralized markets, there's irregularities. 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 Hmm. That's one way of putting it. You put it in a different way. On March 1st at Alhambra Partners at the blog post, you posted a, uh, an article that was titled, Last Year Wasn't the Year of Inflation. It consistently set up this year for inflationary fail. And there's a chart there that we're pulling up right now that goes back to 2007 all the way to the present that shows U.S. dollar repo fails as reported by the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. And we're going to talk about how that's an incomplete picture. This is just a small slice that we're getting. And what this graph shows us is that these speculative transactions seem to always coincide with moments of monetary contraction and disorder in the global economy. Isn't that right, Jeff? What a coincidence. Random coincidence, right? It can't be anything else because as we know, quantitative easing, money printing, the Fed, ample liquidity, all the uh, mainstream terms that get thrown around, you know, abundant reserves, all that kind of stuff. But yet, as you point out, Emil, time and time again throughout the last, you know, 15 years, we see these repo fail swarms correspond with either parts of or maybe a big part of these global dollar shortages, these deflationary monetary periods that cut right against the idea that there's plentiful money. And of course, collateralized lending and collateral itself are tremendously important parts of the global monetary system, as most people, well, most people should know, because 2008 wasn't about subprime mortgages. If you had to boil it down to a single point of failure, it was more likely to have been a collateral shortage than anything else. And look at these dates, ladies and gentlemen. If you're on the podcast and you don't see the graph, the dates where these swarms took place, 2007, 2008, 2011, the European sovereign debt crisis. Jeff, I'm going to ask you in a moment about 2013. Maybe that was appropriate, like in the mainstream narrative, maybe that one would work. But then 2014, the next euro dollar shortage began. 2016, that was the end of it. 
the end of 2016, maybe that's another moment where we could say that the mainstream narrative is on it. You can tell me, Jeff, then end of 2017, leading right into the next euro dollar shortage, 2020 during the crisis, COVID, and now rising again. Jeff, did I identify the ones that kind of stand out as maybe different? Tell me, what do you think? I was going to say 2013. No, I think 2013 was consistent to the beginning of what we call euro dollar number three, because mm -hmm. if you remember the summer of 2013, while everybody was focused on the so-called taper tantrum, it was really a taper shortage. But underneath that tape, uh, the taper celebration, sorry, underneath that taper celebration in the treasury market, where we had steepening curves and rising nominal yields. There was all sorts of creaks and cracks and noises. Mostly overseas, there was eventually an emerging market crisis. And if you recall, euro dollar futures curve topped out in September. So maybe I think more along the lines of there was a bunch of stuff in the middle of 2013 that was the beginnings or the early rumblings of what would become euro dollar number three, including all sorts of collateral indications all throughout 2013, even before the, you know, the taper tantrum in May. There had been a, a small spike in repo fails, for example, I think in February and March of 2013 too, as well as, as I know this from personal experience, the Federal Reserve buying on the run treasuries and causing a collateral shortages at that time too, and then realizing the error and immediately changing their ways and they stopped buying on the run treasuries. So the collateral shortage may have been part of the precipitating events or series of events that led into Euro dollar number three back in 2013. Jeff, the graph that we're looking at, it shows a clear escalation leading up to the beginning of 2018. Now, the escalation makes sense to me. Things have been getting worse in the global monetary system. The pressure has been ratcheting up. But then after 2018, it would suggest to me that the repo fail totals are lower and therefore things are a little bit better. Is that the case or is there something important here to know about the T-bill deluge thanks to President Trump? Well, that's it. <laughs> you spoiled the surprise. So yeah, after 20, late early 2018 was the last real big spike in repo fails up until recently. And that was really, you know, sort of a regime change. And the regime change was the federal government after the Tax Cut and Jobs Act of December 2017 began to issue a whole hell of a lot of treasury bills. So we had a change in the supply dynamic for supply of collateral, supply of the best of the best of the best collateral in the marketplace. And that kept up by and large over the last couple of years with some you know, ups and downs along the way. But, but since 2017, the reason repo fails look different, and they look categorically different, is that the supply mechanics change. But that doesn't change the underlying problems, which are structural in terms of you know, dealer risk aversion, dealer balance sheet capacities, and the dynamics that go into those things. So even though there's better supply and that has tamped down repo fails in the overall big picture, it doesn't it didn't change the underlying problems that we still have, which are these periods when dealers become risk averse. They contract their activities, including securities lending, which I think we're going to get into in a minute here. And that leaves the system, even though there's more supply, it leaves the system short, sometimes scarce, sometimes short of collateral. I'm going to get a lot of hate mail and death threats and ransom notes because as a host, I failed to even define what repurchase agreements are and the fails. What are those so that we can talk about securities lending? So Jeff, can you save me and reduce the number of ransom notes I'm going to be getting? You know, the ones with the little, the newspaper cutouts. I love those. Yeah. I love those. But tell us. They're also very creative. 
And that's really repurchase agreements are very creative, too. And there's a whole history that, you know, maybe someday we'll get into that, too. Why they're called repurchase agreements in the first place. Right. Spoiler has to do with the Fed. But anyway, a repurchase agreement isn't actually a repurchase agreement. It's a collateralized loan. Uh, So instead of, you know, from the perspective of the cash borrower, it's I'm not selling a security agreeing to buy it back the next day. I'm essentially borrowing cash overnight and securing that loan by pledging a treasury. So it looks like a purchase and sale, but it's really not. It's really a collateralized loan because collateralized loan would be the safest, most risk-free transaction that we can engage in. So long as I have collateral, I can probably borrow cash in any venue that I want to. The problem is, do I have collateral and where does it come from? And that collateral in our most frequent example, our most generic example is a U.S. Treasury security and it's exchanged for cash, but it could be all manner of assets. And it doesn't have to be exchanged for cash, does it, Jeff? It could be securities lending. Unfortunately, we're not told what kind of detail, what's taking place in the data we are presented. But tell us first about securities lending. Securities lending, securities transformation. So obviously, I have an interest to use the most high quality collateral I possibly can because that will give me the best terms when I want to go to borrow cash. If I'm using a U.S. treasury, that means I'm going to have a low haircut and I'm going to have very easy time securing some kind of of loan. If I have a much riskier security and I want to pledge that as collateral, I'm not going to get as favorable terms pledging that as collateral. So I have every incentive to try to make my risky collateral into not risky collateral. And there's any number of ways you can do that, including going to a major dealer and saying, I have XYZ risky collateral. I want to trade it for a treasury. Can we swap collateral for collateral? And so you can have a collateralized arrangement where I'm putting up a junk form of collateral and getting in return, I'm borrowing a good form of collateral that I can then reuse in the repo market to borrow cash under the most favorable terms. And it could be at times where I've borrowed this treasury from a dealer. I don't want to give the treasury back. And so that could lead to what's called a fail. At the end of this transaction, the security transaction, the securities lending transaction, if the trade does not unwind in the way it's supposed to, that leads to what's called a repo fail or just a fail. The Federal Reserve Bank of New York reports this data, but they only report it for primary dealers. Jeff, does that capture the vast majority of repurchase agreement activity? We don't really know. We think that's the minority part, but we, do, we, we don't have any real idea how big the repo market is. And you can see people you know, put out uh, estimations all the time, and they're basically back of the envelope calculations. We don't really know because nobody keeps track, especially in the offshore spaces. We don't know how big the euro dollar repo market is because how would we? Unless the, most repo transactions take place between two counterparties where I say I have a treasury, you have cash. We get together on a correspondent basis. We might even exchange swift messages, but if we can't exchange swift messages, maybe we'll just pick up the phone and talk to each other. But either way, it's between two counterparties. It doesn't hit the tape anywhere. It doesn't go into FRBNY's database. It doesn't get reported. And so most of repo is just done out there in the dark in the shadows. What FRBNY does keep track of is these repos and the problems in repos, these fails in repos, reported by the primary dealers, which is those 20-some banks that have been given special privilege to transact with the Federal Reserve. So they kind of have to give up the information that the uh, Federal Reserve Bank of New York wants. And the other problem with the data is that not only is it just primary dealers, FRBNY doesn't break it down between 
repo fails of the traditional cash for collateral type versus repo fails that might be collateral for collateral, which is to me, I would love that kind of information because it would be extremely helpful. So all we know is that from FRBNY's data, here's a lump sum total of weekly fails from whatever type and only from primary dealers. You would love that information because collateral chains have been disrupted by risk aversion without risk taking on the part of dealers, meaning a higher degree of reuse and repledging, those collateral chains can contract, leaving collateral users to scramble to find other ways to maintain their use of collateral, including failing to deliver collateral, which technically doesn't belong to them or you. Basically, we thought this was money good, these junk bonds or whatever it was that we exchanged because the world was reflating, you were going to repay it, you were getting cash flows, the economic activity was going to make good on these instruments. But now it's not. Now something's turning south and all of a sudden I don't have the confidence that those assets are going to be made good on. It's not just we've seen it so many times since 2007. Jeff, here's another graph. Now it's zoomed in on 2018 through the most recent time period. And you've called out a few important dates. The recession scare leading in 2019. The 2019 repo rumble, the GFC2, the COVID days, Fedwire 24th of February, the following week, how we saw that spike. And then more recently, October is when we've seen a pickup in repo fails, which coincides with some of the capital market activity that also turned in October. What should we take away from this graph? There's a lot there that we need to unpack. And I, unfortunately, I don't think we have the time to do so. Yeah. I think just going back briefly to 2019, we had the repo rumble in, in September of 2019 that in you know the mainstream has blamed on a shortage of bank reserves. And this is one of the areas that we could clear that. I mean, I don't think that was the case at all. And one of the ways we could clear that up is if we had this data on security for security repo fails, because I think that would have told us the issue wasn't the dealers had too few reserves, they had too few collateral. And some of those collateral for collateral securities transactions are what fell down or what started to implode. And that's why we saw the behavior in the yield curve up until August and September of 2019 is that it wasn't a shortage of reserves, it was a shortage of collateral. But regardless, let's go back to the original premise here. Let's fast forward to February 24th of last year, which is a date that we'd spent last week going over the anniversary of Fedwire, which was essentially a dealer event. So Fedwire got shut down from some operational error that knocked the dealers out for a loop, which meant they spent a lot of time later that day. And then part of the time the next day trying to clear the backlog and all these transactions, which meant some of them were absent from a seven year note auction, which I mean, this stuff doesn't sound like it should be a big deal and it really shouldn't be a big deal. But eventually that led to a cascading effect where the next week we see the spike in repo fails, which is I mean, is that again, was this short sellers betting on interest rates going up, therefore treasury prices going down? If it was, if that's why there were repo fails, why would they be covering their shorts or be forced to cover their shorts when they're paying off? The shorts are paying off during that time because remember, after that seven-year note auction, interest rates spiked tremendously. So if anything, you, th you would think these speculative shorts would be adding more to their positions, convinced that inflation was going to be a problem, interest rates would have to go higher, and it seemed like all of those things were being converted. But yet at the same time as we went over last week, we saw the yield curve take a very different view of what was going on, which was a reminder that the system is not resilient 
it is indeed fragile. And if this little Fedwire thing that knocked dealers out of the box for only a couple of hours, then it spilled over to the next day, that's a problem that leads to all sorts of negative consequences. And so it's one of those things where you say, if this little tiny thing led to all these other consequences, downstream consequences that were negative, the potential for something bigger going wrong at some point is that much higher than most people believe. And then we see the spillover into repo fails, which suggests the same type of thing, which is dealer risk aversion. Dealers take a step back. That leads to collateral scarcity becoming collateral shortages, which are the very thing that the system is very well aware of is the real downside, the real worst case in terms of money. And that's what started in October, isn't it? October, November. We see it in the fails and we see it in the trajectory of different spreads that we've discussed before. It seems like at that point, the markets were realizing that we've escalated to a new level regarding economic activity and collateral availability, and things started to turn for the worse. And it's been a self-reinforcing uh, what f- phenomenon ever since. Jeff, that's it from me. Yeah, dealers take a step back, which means there's less dealer activity, which means there's less quote-unquote money in the Eurodollar system, and that includes collateral. So all of these things correspond exactly. If it was just one thing or another, you could say, okay, this is an outlier, maybe something else. But as we show in the article, it's all of these things, all at the same time. It's not coincidence, it's correlation, it's corroboration. So you have repo fails start to rise it's not a huge spike, but it's a noticeable spike. And it's the, the highest level of sustained repo fails going, going back for several years, back to 2019, which is a change in condition. When did that happen? Early October. We saw the yield curve start to flatten out a lot more. When? Early October. We saw the spike in repo fails reach its peak in uh, the week of October 20th. What do we see since October 21st? We saw the yield curve, we saw the Eurodollar futures curve begin to flatten and then invert. So as the Eurodollar futures curve went from relatively steep to flat to inverted to now very inverted, repo fails have been consistent with that curve dynamic too. So as you said, Emil, it's not one thing, or it's not another thing, it's all of these things simultaneously corroborating each other, different marketplaces, different forms of money, different things, all of them together saying that we have a big problem here. The system is fragile. We have collateral scarcity. We have more deflationary potential. And that's going to eventually, over time, interrupt the real economic system globally to be able to do what it needs to do to actually grow and recover. So you can see why, for example, bond yields are low and stay low because deflationary potential isn't just high. It has been escalating ever since Fedwire last year. It's a real shame, Jeff, that it all takes so much time, right? That's our most precious resource. And we're just going through another cycle. It's taken like two years for us to get to this point. And we're, we haven't even you know, hit the crisis point where we can begin another reflation and recovery. But oh, well, maybe I'm a little bit sad. Jeff, that's it for me. Do you have anything else? No, again, I think our message here is again, Last year was supposed to be the year of inflation. It seemed that way. CPIs went through the roof and everybody's talking about the 1970s again, highest you know, CPI and consumer price inflation since the 1970s, when here we have a consistent monetary picture, I mean, really consistent, unambiguous monetary picture that is not inflationary. So that message has been sent and received in the bond market, which is telling you that you should not expect inflation to last. In fact, that we're starting to build up more and more on the downside. 
because of these things and that they're becoming self-reinforcing. They're escalating, as you said, Emil. You know, it's been over a year now where we've seen them build up and they continue to build up further and further. Thank you, Jeff. I'll talk to you again soon. All right. Take care, Emil. Take care.